Thanks for today and thanks for a beautiful day out. Thanks for bringing us out to your house to study your word. Open our hearts as we study this great topic of salvation that we may understand it, that we may see some things we may not have seen before, that you would encourage our hearts by it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to start the doctrine of salvation, and this is probably going to take a little bit longer than the other topics we've studied. Um, Probably go about 20 weeks on this probably to the end of the year, just because there's a lot to it. There's a lot of topics to talk about. There's a lot of things to cover in it, and we don't want to shortchange it. And uh, what makes it so important is we've been hinting and sort of, uh, I don't know, working around this particular topic as we've gone through the doctrine of man, sin, Christ, the Holy Spirit, doctrine of God, doctrine of the Bible. We've sort of been around this one here and this is the the doctor sort of brings a lot of that stuff together and a lot of the things that we've talked about earlier in class regarding God regarding Christ regarding man and sin we're going to bring all together and tie up a little bit here so it's going to bring a lot of loose ends together Um, what is it soteriology is the doctrine of salvation of God saving man and uh, several things in this or several points that we're going to be working through. We're going to be looking through the plan of salvation. Um, when did God come up with this plan? We're going to talk about that. Now, we did a little bit when we talked about the theology proper. Does anybody remember we talked about the decree of God? Remember that? That's a, that's a year and a half ago. <coughs> the decree of God is basically God's ordained plan before time began of what he was going to do. The thing to understand about salvation is it's not a, uh, a plan B. It's not that God created a perfect universe, man fell, and God had to scramble to come up with a, a way to salvage the mess. It was all part of the plan from eternity past. We're going to talk about that. The provision, how is it that God provided salvation to us? We talked about a lot of this in the doctrine of Christology, right? Christ, Christ came to be the substitute, the, the savior of the world, the lamb of God. Um, we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about the purpose of, of salvation. Why did God save you? A lot of people think, well, God saved me to keep me out of hell. No, he didn't. He saved you to glorify him. Getting out of hell is part of the benefit of that. But the reason God saved you is not for your benefit. The, the reason God created the universe was not for our benefit. It's for his own. He created it for his own pleasure. He did it because he wanted to. Um, we get to be part of that. But the universe was not created for me, for my pleasure, for my will and my desires. It was created for God's glory. And we'll talk about that. Why is it so important? Why is it so... Um, I mean, why is this something of such import? And the reason is it intersects with all the other areas of theology we've talked to so far. Um, theology proper, the doctrine of God. It's God's mercy and forgiveness and grace balanced with justice and holiness that necessitates salvation. God is a God of grace, love, compassion, and mercy, but we are sinful. So how can God be just and the justifier? How can God be both righteous and holy and yet forgiving and compassionate and merciful? And so salvation, the doctrine of salvation, helps us to understand how God can be both. And that is through the substitute, the one who took our place. 
That second point, it intersects with Christology. Why? Well, the reason God can forgive me is somebody took my punishment. Somebody took my place. I'm forgiven because Christ paid the debt that I owed God that I could never pay. I could never pay it in an eternity in the lake of fire. I could never pay the debt that I owe God. And Christ was able to make that payment. He took my place on the cross. And we're going to talk, we talked about substitution. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Christ took our place. He took the wrath due us. He took that upon himself on the cross. Can we back up a minute? Yeah. It's for the benefit of the benefit of the person in the sense that that person glorifies God. Why did God create the universe? Yeah, to display his character, to display his attributes, to display who he is. He did it because he loves us. Right. You can say that it's more than just for his glory. He did it because he loves us. He made us because he loves us. But it glorifies him when he displays his grace to us. It brings glory to him. All right. That's a little bit different than most of the thinking that we've been accustomed to. Most of the evangelism that we've been exposed to, most of the evangelistic methods are come to Jesus, he'll solve all your problems. It's like God is a celestial bank teller that wants to just dole out all of the goodies to you. And it's a very, it's a very what we call anthropocentric, man-centered view of things. The Bible doesn't view it from the point of view of man. The Bible views it from the viewpoint of God. God did all of this for his glory. Now there are tremendous benefits to us as men and women who come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We get to glorify God by being objects of his mercy. Okay, so you just use the word benefits. I'm not trying to argue for argument. No, I understand. It's just, yeah, it's one of those I understand because we've been ingrained in the thinking that God is just up there just wanting to lavish all kinds of goodies on us for our own benefit. And unfortunately, we have a Christianity today where Jesus is seen as the great need meter. It's a good deal to come to Jesus because he's going to solve all your problems. He's going to make you happy. He's going to fulfill your dreams, and on and on and on it goes. That's not why God saved you. God did not save you to fulfill all your dreams. Right. Right. But I see benefit too as something that you're not expecting, so it becomes a, it's know, a gift. It's a gift. And that's what the Bible yeah. still glorifying him. Even in the verse it says he is not willing that any should perish. Yeah. You know, still, yeah. And and we talked about this, if you remember earlier last year. Even the lost in hell glorify God in the sense that they are objects of God's wrath. And so the universe, the created beings in the universe, see God's wrath poured out in sin just as much as they see his grace poured out in his salvation. We understand God's justice 
by knowing of his wrath on those who do not believe. Yeah, we glorify God when we display what he is like. We make him look, we, we shine a light on his character. And that's why God created us, to shine a light on his character. That's why as Christians we want to give God glory in the sense that we want to make him look good. We make God look good when we act like God. And that's what Christ-likeness is. Christ-likeness is becoming like Jesus who makes God look good. <coughs> so that, that's, it's, it's a different way of thinking because we, we are so ingrained with this mentality that you come to Jesus because he solves your problems. He makes you feel good. And he does. Those, but those are side benefits. Yeah, and, and, and if you go even further, what you see in a lot of times is, you know, you see people on TV and that to say, well, if you come to Jesus, you know, you'll be healthy. God will, you know, you got healing, you'll be healed. You'll, you'll have, you know, life will be a bed of roses. That's not, if there's anything that the New Testament teaches, that if you come to Jesus, you're, you're against the world. You, you may have a rough time down here, but... It's worth it because we have an eternity with him. You may not get, you don't come to Jesus because he's going to fulfill all your desires and dreams. You come to Jesus because he fills his desires, his dreams, and that's better than yours. It's better to fulfill God's plans for you than your plans for you. Yeah. Because it's so ingrained in us. It is so, it is just, it's pummeled at us time and time again. Yeah, what's in it for me? Yeah, and, and part, of the, part of the salvation presentation a lot of times we, we do is we, we, we present the gospel as what's in it for you. Well, Paul, you know, he, he said God commands you to repent. It's for, it's for his benefit. It's, it, you get some benefits along with it, but God, the main beneficiary of your salvation is God who is glorified in your repentance. It's it's a different way of thinking. Got to ponder that a little bit. Yeah. Right. That's Romans one, where we don't even want to think of God. We don't even acknowledge God in our consciousness. We want to push Him out. But it intersects with Christology here. He's our perfect substitute. And this is the other thing, our one and only Savior. One of the things we're going to understand about salvation here is there's only one way back to God. There's not multiple ways. We, we live in a pluralistic society that says, well, you know, you got your way and the Buddhist got his way and, you know, the Islam, they got a way. And we're all sort of making our way back to God. But no, we're not. We're not. Um, there's only one way to salvation. Christ said, I am the door. I'm not a door. I'm the door. Jesus Christ said, I'm not a way to God. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And you don't get there any other way. Um, any other way you try to get in, you're a thief and a robber. You don't come to God any other way than through Jesus Christ. Because he is the substitute. He is the one who paid the penalty for our sins. He's the only one who could do that. And um, it's a very exclusiv exclusivistic thing. And that, that bucks, oh, that just frosts the, the unbeliever out there. 
They don't like, you know, they don't care if you're a Christian. They just get irritated when you say you're right and they're wrong. That's really the problem. Believe anything you want at Oberlin College. Just don't believe you're right. Believe anything. Um, but the Bible teaches there's only one way back to God. And we're going to talk about that one way. It intersects with pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Sends the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and produces the new life of Christ in us. Um, the Holy Spirit is the agent of regeneration. What does that mean? He is the one that makes us alive. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings new life in us. The Holy Spirit is the one that brought you to the consciousness of your own sin. You know that. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts you of your sin. Um, and it's interesting here, if you look at this, all three members of the Trinity are intimately involved in our salvation. We're going to talk about that. God chose us. God the Father chose us in eternity past. Christ came and paid the penalty, the substitute, took our place. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings regeneration, that brings new life. We're regenerated. And we're given a consciousness of God through the Holy Spirit. How is it that you understand spiritual things? We talked about that because you have the Holy Spirit. If you did not have the Holy Spirit, you would not understand anything we're talking about. It intersects with the homardiology, the doctrine of sin. Why? Well, it's our sin problem that requires this, doesn't it? Man is born separated from God. We're going our own way. Um, we can't save ourselves. The relationship that we had with God is shattered. It's a shattered relationship. And unless God intervenes, unless God does a work in us, nothing will change. We're going to talk a little bit more about this when we talk about depravity. Depravity. Everybody here, anybody hear the word depravity? When you think of depravity, what do you think of? Wickedness, evil, wickedness, um, radical evil. Um, the Bible says, unfortunately, all of us are depraved. All of us. Um, now, you say, well, you meant now, look, you know, I, I know my, my next door neighbor's not a Christian. They're not depraved. Yeah, they are. Now, they are not as depraved as they could be, right? Are any, is anybody as evil as they could be? No. But we're all evil. And when the Bible talks about depravity, what the Bible is saying is that all of us have been infected with sin to such a degree that it has infected and affected every part of our life. Your thinking is skewed because of sin. Think of the average pagan out there. Can they think morally, biblically on any issue? Because it's skewed, all right? Because their sin has blinded them. The Bible talks about the blindness of sin. We call that earlier, if you remember that fancy word, the noetic effect of sin, where it affects your mind, your ability to think morally. It's not that people are stupid, right? But they can't think right when it comes to morality. Why? They are depraved. <coughs> sin has affected all of us. Yeah. Yeah. It has affected all of us in every area of our life. And 
Only salvation can undo that effect. Only salvation can bring light. It intersects with the doctrine of end times. We're gonna, that's the last topic we're going to study here. Because where do all the lost spend eternity? The lake of fire. Where do all the saved spend eternity? Heavens and new earth. Salvation determines where you're going to spend your forever existence. Those who are lost will be forever outside the presence of God. In a place the Bible calls a place of torment. A place of unending pain and suffering. Remorse. Um, and we talked about that earlier on. We talked about the eternality of hell. It intersects with bibliology, doctrine of the Bible, because why? Well, here's the way that, here's where you find out how to get right with God in His Word. God gave us His Word, His Scriptures, so that we may know our way back. So we may understand what it is required for salvation. If you want to get right with God, you don't go to your own understanding, right? You go to what God tells you. If you offend somebody, you don't reconcile on your terms, you reconcile on their terms. And the Bible tells us those terms. It tells us what is required. It intersects with the doctrine of man. Why? Well, man and his sin problem. The only way to reestablish a proper relationship with God is by salvation. He's got to save us. He's got to redeem us. He's got to give us new life. It intersects with ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. What are, what are we here for? Why did God leave the church here? To be a light. God did not, understand this, God did not um, create the church as a place for us to worship. I know that sounds heretical. If God really wanted us to worship him, what would happen the moment we became saved? We go to heaven. That's where you can really worship God. That's where you can really do it. Now, that doesn't mean that we should not worship in church. We should worship in church. That's not what I'm saying. But that's not the purpose for the church's existence. The purpose for the church's existence is to be the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, and to be the place where saints are equipped in order to go out and do the work of the ministry, which is evangelism. We are to be evangelists. That's why God left us here. God left you here in order to spread the good news. To spread what God can do in a life. And that's what the purpose of the church is. We're, we'll talk about that in the next course here. So when we look at this doctrine of salvation, there's, you know, I've read a lot of material on this. I've been doing a lot of thinking on this. How am I going to approach this? This is, this is like, how do you eat an elephant? I mean, this thing's an elephant. Someone says, well, the way you eat an elephant is you've got to take a one bite at a time. Um, it's, it's a vast topic. So the way I'm going to approach this in our discussion here is I'm going to look at it from the time perspective. We're going to start in eternity past. I'm going to work our way all the way through to eternity future. We're going to start with the doctrine of election and predestination. I, now, I've promised you we're going to get to that, and we are going to get to that. All right? <laughs> And, and just don't throw things at me, um, but we are going to talk about that, and we'll probably start it today, the doctrine of election and predestination. And then we're going to work our way all the way through to glorification, eternity, future. And along the way, we're going to talk about 
the doctrine of substitution, the doctrine of penal substitution, the atonement, redemption. In fact, the way we're going to start here is we're going to look at eternity past. We're going to look at the decree of God, election, predestination, those terms that everybody fights over and everybody has an opinion on. And you know what's going to happen when we're done with this? You're not going to understand it. All right? Um, I've been working over this thing for 35 years and I still don't understand it. I know where I stand on it. I know what the Bible says about it, but I still don't get it yet. And the reason I don't get it yet is because in our fallen state, we're not going to get all the answers we want. There's still a mystery about this, right? How can, God be, how can Christ be fully God and fully man? I can understand that as a fact, right? Yeah, he's fully God, he's fully man. Okay, I, I believe that. Explain that. Well, um, 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 I can't. And that's where we're going to land on this. You're, you're, you're going to have to just take... What we're going to do is we're going to make all the passages of the Bible fit together. And it's going to come up with an answer that many of us may not like or understand. You just got to go with it. All right? Because that's what the Bible says. And then we're going to look at the pre-cross. Just gloss over this a little bit because we've already covered a lot of this. The fall and the promise of salvation. I mean, it was Adam's sin that necessitated this whole deal. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at some of the pictures <coughs> of salvation in the Old Testament, like um, the Day of Atonement. You know, that was a very great picture, the Passover. Um, we're going to look at salvation in the Old Testament. This is interesting. A lot of people think, well, how, if you ask the average person in church, if you walk up to anybody and open the door and say, tell me, how, how is it you saved in the Old Testament? What do you think they would tell you? How was a Jew saved in the Old Testament? Yeah, that's the wrong answer. That's not how you were saved in the Old Testament. You're saved by grace in the Old Testament, just like the New. You're saved by believing God, just like you do in the New. Now, what you believed about God may be different, but you still believed in God. How was Abraham saved? By believing God. He didn't, he didn't know about the law. He didn't know about animal sacrifice. Now, he did a couple of those, but... He wasn't saved by that. He was saved by believing what God told him. He took God up on. He believed what God said. And it was counted to him for righteousness. Noah, what did he do? Build a boat. Okay, I'll build a boat. He did what God told him to do. Yeah, Hebrews chapter 11. What is faith? Faith is believing what God tells you. What did God tell me? He told me this. I believe him. And God says, I account that to you for righteousness. Pictures. Big picture book. It's a big picture book. That's what it was. It did not produce salvation, but it pictured salvation. It represented it. All right? And a lot of people get really muddled up on that because they keep thinking, well, there's multiple ways to God. Let's see, the Jew was saved by works. No, they weren't saved by works. I mean, that's the whole argument that Paul is making in, in, in the New Testament and the writer of Hebrews makes is that if you were able to be saved by works under the Old Testament, why did Christ have to die? There's no need for it. If you could be saved by the blood of bulls and goats, Christ's death was unnecessary. So we're going to talk about that whole concept there. And then some of the beautiful things we're going to talk about. The atonement. What does it mean to be the atonement? The covering. We're going to talk about 
penal substitution, the, the doctrine of the atonement. There's a lot of weird things out there about the atonement. Some people say, well, Jesus died to redeem us from Satan. No, he didn't. Jesus died as a good moral example of what we should do. That's hogwash. Jesus died to take our place. That's called penal substitution. He died to take the wrath of God upon himself that we deserve. And we're going to talk about these great topics of atonement, substitution. Fancy word, propitiation. What does that mean? Satisfaction. Christ satisfied the wrath of God fully. That's what it means to be in a propitiation. He is our propitiation, 1 John 2 says. He satisfied the wrath of God. This is the interesting thing, folks. There is nothing more we can do to satisfy the wrath of God than Christ already did. I was uh, watching a, um, a special on purgatory from a Catholic channel. And they were talking about... Uh, the necessity of purgatory where in the Catholic system of belief you go there and you pay for your own personal sins. It's not. It's not. It's not. But they have this whole, and, and, and one of the cardinals there said it's obligatory for every Catholic to believe in this doctrine. That when you die as a Catholic you go to purgatory and work off your sins. Well, the Bible says Jesus is our Satisfaction. He satisfied the wrath of God for us. There's nothing more that we can do. You know that you cannot pay for a single sin that you've committed. Not one. Period. And eternity in purgatory won't pay off one sin. Where did they come up with that? I was tyrannized with that growing up. Yeah. Where did they come up with that? Um, they find support through, it, through some of their apocryphal books, the extra books in the Bible that they have that we do not. And it was part of the dogma of the church from very early on. Um, that's the best answer I can come up with. Yeah. Yeah. And see, see, we got to understand something here, and just a little. We'll take a little detour here. When we talk about the salvation of sin, one of the or doctrine of salvation. One of the problems that we have is we have pride. Our human pride. Our human pride says, you know, I have to earn this. I have to do something. It can't be free. I can't, I can't believe that God saved me just because he wanted to, not because there was some innate goodness, value, niceness about me. I can't believe I get heaven... And I don't have to work for it. Um, there's, there's a real pride issue here. And you see that a lot. And one of the things that the Bible teaches is you have nothing to offer God. When we come to God, we come to God totally bankrupt. We have nothing in our pockets. We have nothing in our hands. We are a mess. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn over their sin. 
When you come to God, you don't come to God with your little trinkets thinking that somehow you're going you're, 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 you're to earn his favor by what you bring. Or because God says, oh, you know, I, I just, boy, you know that Alan guy, I just like him so much. I think I'll save him. No, that, there's, nothing, there's nothing there that we, that, that, that. Now, does God love us? Of course he does. But that love's not based on our intrinsic value. It's based on what God does. Am, am I making any sense on that? Because we have this idea that God loves me because I deserve love. No, you don't deserve love. That's the point of it. God loves you because he is love. Not because there's some value in you. In, innately in you. And yet there's a pride issue. And one of the biggest stumbling blocks to people and especially in the Catholic persuasion, is they cannot believe that salvation is totally free. They've got to do something. I've got to do something. It can't be free. It can't be just as easy as believing in Jesus. I, there's something I've got to do. I've got to work for it. I've got to earn it. I've got to deserve it. I've got to do Hail Marys or whatever it is. I got, there's something I've got to do. Right. And, and that, that a, lot of, a lot of that is behind the doctrine of the purgatory. Where I, you know, I was listening to this Catholic cardinal and this, you know, these Catholic priests talking about this. And they just, well, you know, it's just, everybody knows that it's got to be this way. Well, why do you have to know? Well, you know, it's not fair that God would take a, a, a serial killer to heaven and a, a real godly person to heaven directly without them being some difference. I mean, I, I, there, there's got, he did bad things. He, he needs to pay for those. Well, and I was good. Yeah, and, and, and that's what we do. We, we compare. We compare. And see, here's the point, folks. That's where our depravity comes in. And what we need to do is understand that in God's sight, all of us are black lumps of coal. All of us are. And we can sit and we can talk to one another and say, well, I'm not quite as black as you are, but we're all black lumps of coal in God's sight. And, and understanding that helps you understand God's grace. It, you know, at night when I think about God was gracious to save me, and it's like, wow, I can't get my head around that. I know how bad I am. Yeah. And how many sins does it take to send you to hell? One. One. Well, I, I only did a thousand sins. You did two. I'm better than you. No, you're not. We're all in the same boat. We're all going to... Yeah. Yeah. You know, I only murdered one people. You murdered ten. I'm better than you. Um, we, we have this concept. Yeah, we have this concept of comparisons. And what the Bible does, it brings us all back to the same spot. Every human being, apart from Christ, is equally condemned. Equally deserving of eternal punishment, equally deserving of hell. And it's only God's grace that anybody is saved. And it's not deserved. And Christ did not 
start the process of your salvation. He finished it. He did not get you going in this process and then you go off to purgatory for 20 million years and work off all your sins. He finished it. Because you can't work off any of your sins. You can't pay for any of your sins. The Imago Dei. The, the Imago Dei, the image of God. We talked about image of God. Your worth is not based on your intrinsic value. It's based on the value that God gives you that is worthless. You're worthless. But God, does that make sense what I'm trying to get at here? God, God does not value us because there's some innate thing within us that is valuable. God loves us because he chooses to love us and he chooses to value us. He has put his image in us. Yes. Created us. Right. Right. Yeah. God God loves the world because God is love. Not because the world is lovable. Right. Only because God says you have worth, not because you have it in and of yourself. You know, I, I mean, I, a bad analogy, a bad analogy, is I could take a $100 bill and $100 of gold and put them on the table and ask you which one is more valuable. Well, both are equally $100, right? But there's something intrinsic in the gold that makes it valuable, yeah. not in the piece of paper. Yeah. The piece of paper is worth $100 because the United States government says it is. Mm -hmm. Not because that piece of paper is worth $100, right? right? Do you understand what's going on there? I am valuable not because I'm innately valuable. I'm valuable because God says I am. And because Christ paid for my, Christ loved me so much he paid the penalty for my sin because he loved me. Not because there's innate goodness within me. That attracts God to me. We're maybe beating a dead horse, but I think it's important to, to understand in our, in our own mind how depraved we are because there is this pride issue where people say, well, I'm important to God because I exist. No, you're important to God because he loves you. That's, that's where your importance is derived. Right. Does that make any sense? Are we... Is this making any sense, or are we just beating that horse? Things about it. <coughs> Good. Let me get something to drink. Um, depravity is not based upon the fact that we're 
sinners by nature as much as it's based on we are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. I mean, we are therefore depraved by nature, but God needed to send a propitiation uh, by means of his son to save everybody because Okay, because um, everybody was born in sin and shaped in iniquity, Psalm 51. Yeah. So whether we're talking Enoch, who didn't even ha have to die, or whether we're talking the serial killer, we're talking that just by virtue of being alive, born, you're a sinner. Right. You're, 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 you're born, born depraved. Born depraved. Right. So therefore, your, your statement earlier about in heaven or, or the, the, the serial kill, killer who gets saved versus the nice moral person who also gets saved and they both end up in heaven and how unfair is that in terms of salvation for each of them. But when, when people get to heaven, Aren't there levels of, of reward? Reward. There you go. Just yeah. as in, in hell, there are levels of. We'll, we'll talk about that yeah. a little bit. So, I mean, ultimately, there is some sort of a difference afforded the serial killer who is saved versus the nice moral person because even though they both got saved and they both, therefore, ended up in heaven, the rewards will be different. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 if he, or, uh, first we'll, yeah, we'll work through, we'll work right. through those. Right. Um, but, but one of the things that's interesting, your sins, the acts that you do, that's not what sends you to hell. The fact that you are born depraved sends I'm you saying. to hell. That's what I'm saying. It's not your acts that do it. God sorts that all out. Yeah. God will sort that all out. Yeah. He, he will. Right. But we're going to talk about uh, propitiation, redemption being bought with a price. And who did Christ pay the redemption price to? It was God the Father. We were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Um, it was his death on the cross provided redemption. We're going to talk about these great terms, justification. Um, to be declared righteous, it doesn't mean that you're made righteous. It means to be declared righteous. In other words, as far as God is concerned, when he looks at Alan Schaefer, he says, he is righteous. Now, am I righteous? No, <laughs> I'm not. But as far as the penalty goes, God has declared me acquitted. I'm righteous. On what basis? Christ paid my penalty. Christ took my place. Sanctification. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be sanctified. We hit a little bit about this in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We'll develop it more fully. To be made holy. This is 
what we're doing now as we become more godly, as we become more Christ-like, as we grow in our Christian life, we are made holy. We are made set apart. This is a growth thing. Hopefully we're all being sanctified. And preservation, what does that mean? Um, best way to understand is once you're saved, you're always saved. God will not undo what He already did. You cannot become un, un, unsaved if you're saved. Now there's several um, theological systems out there that say you can lose your salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that once you are truly born again, you can never lose it. No, the Mormons have a different odd thing. Um, some, some Wesleyan persuasions believe that. Some Nazarene, not all, but some Nazarene persuasions believe that. Um, Pentecostals do. Um, some Church of God. Um, and, and what it basically says, yeah, you can come to Christ, you can be truly born again, but if you fall back into sin, you can lose your salvation and you have to be saved all over again. Now that's sort of a bummer way to live your life because you never know that I do that one little sin that it's not going to, you know, it's going to condemn me. Uh, where am I on this scale of things? Not that, you know, those sins are like cults or satanic or anything, but isn't that like Satan's way of, you know, if your focus is always on me and what I did, yeah. then you're not going out and doing what you're supposed to be doing. Right. You're right. It's a focus on us. It's, it's a focus on I have to contribute to my salvation. That's the concept. See, that, that's where that pride factor comes in. I have to do something to contribute to my salvation. And I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, the only thing you contribute to salvation is your sin. That's your contribution, is the mess that you bring to God. That's, that's, that's the end of your contribution. Everything else is of God. Yeah. Romans three, the end of Romans three. Go and read that. The end of the chapter, starting verse twenty-three, read it through the end. And if it says anything, it says this: When you get to heaven, and someone asks you, "How are you here?" You're going to say, "The grace of God." How'd you get here? God's grace. How are you? God's grace. It's not going to be because I did this, because I did that, because I kept the law, because I did. Paul's saying, where is boasting then? It is excluded. God does not want heaven filled with a bunch of eternal, arrogant, pompous believers who think they got there because they did something. All of us are going to get there for one reason and one reason only, the grace of God. We're all going to be in the same boat we're all going to appreciate God's grace the same way because we all got there the same way. And there's not going to be some eternal boast about what you gave up in order to make it to heaven and how you deserve to be there because you did some great, wonderful thing. Right. Open their eyes and open them up to that. So I generally just don't say a whole lot 
Yeah. That's a, that's not a good understanding of what salvation is. There's only so much you can say when you're working in a place like yeah, that. I mean, you know, I, and I, yeah. And I feel guilty because you know. Yeah. I don't say salvation is all of God, not of you, so, not of works, lest any man should boast. God does not need boasting. We're going to talk about adoption. What does it mean to be adopted? We're all adopted by God. We're going to look at repentance and faith. Repentance is part of salvation. What does it mean to repent? You turn from. You turn around. Change of mind. And where there's true salvation, there is always repentance. There's always repentance. You're broken over sin. If you're not broken over sin, how can you be saved? Right? There's got to be a brokenness over sin. Now that's to different levels to different people. We understand that. But yet there's a consciousness of sin. And faith is what? Belief in God. Believing what God said. We're going to look at eternity future. What is that? Glorification. That's when we get all of it. That's when we're going to receive all that God has promised us. A glorified body. Presence of the Lord. <coughs> communion with the saints forever. Um, that's where our salvation is realized. Now don't worry, because I have what everybody's been waiting for. I've been working on it last night. I haven't got it all done yet, um, but we're working on it. So I'll get the notes to you next week. We'll start with the topic everybody's been waiting for. Predestination and election. Um, this is one of those topics you sort of hate to talk about because everybody has very strong opinions on this. Um, but you know what? It's in the Bible. So if it's in the Bible, what do you got to do? You got to deal with it. All right? So you got, somewhere along the line, I've, I've been promising, promising you for a year and a half we're going to get to this. So now we're going to get to this and we're going to slog through it. It's probably going to take us two or three weeks to get through this. So don't, don't worry about our speed, but we'll, we'll get there. Predestination and election is probably one of the most hotly debated topics in biblical theology. There's a lot of denominations formed over this. You've got particular Baptists, you've got free will Baptists, you've got Wesleyan, Nazarene, Catholic, uh, Lutheran. Almost all denominations have some difference of opinion on this particular topic. It's a very hotly debated topic. And if you get... Someone says if you get three Christians together, you'll find four opinions on this. It, it is. It's, it's a tough one. And we're going to have to work through it. You're going to have to use your head and think and just try to follow what's going on. And you know, when we're done with this, you still may not have it all sorted out. But that's, that's okay because I haven't got it all sorted out yet either. All right? But what is at stake in this? Why is this important to talk about? Well... 
at stake is the nature and character of God. Is God fair or not? I mean, that's one of the big debates, right? Some people say, well, God chose... It's not fair that God chose some to salvation, didn't choose everyone. That's the character of God. How can God be fair? How can God be just and save some and not save others? Or how can God be fair and not offer salvation to some and not offer salvation to everyone? Isn't God unfair? Isn't he unjust? Now one thing we did learn when we studied the doctrine of God is what? Something is fair because God does it. God doesn't do it because it is fair. Do you understand the difference? Something is just because God does it. God doesn't do it because it is just. In other words, the definition of justice, the definition of fairness, is not outside of God. It's within the very nature of God himself. Do you follow that? We're going to talk about that. Um, earlier on we talked about <coughs> this a little bit, but we'll come back and do that. It's going to impact our understanding of salvation. How is it that I am saved? Me, Alan Schaefer. What, what was it that caused me to be saved and not the guy next to me? What's the difference? It's going to impact that. It's going to impact my understanding of what salvation is. And if I really understand this, and this is the beauty of this thing, folks, if you really get your head around some of this, it really gives you um, a sense of the awesomeness and wonder and majesty of God in a way that you won't get if you don't really get a hold of this. Our understanding of evangelism. You know, there's some called hyper-Calvinists who say, why witness to the lost? If they're saved, they're saved. If they're not, they're not. doesn't matter what I do. You ever hear somebody say that? I have. Well, let's, let's think about that a second. Is it true? Let's, let's assume election. Let's assume God chose whom he would save. Let's just assume that for the second. Can I do anything to mess that up? No. So if God shows somebody salvation, it doesn't really matter what I do. That person's going to be saved. You say, so that means we don't have to evangelize, right? No. Because what did God tell you to do? Go evangelize. See, that, that's where you're going to have to be a little bit of schizo on this. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to just be intentionally schizophrenic. The Bible teaches, and we're going to, we're going to study this, God did choose those whom he would save. And they're going to be saved regardless of what anybody or anything does. But God has ordained the method whereby they receive the salvation. And that is through the preaching of the gospel. And that's where we come in. We are part of God's sovereign plan. Don't try to figure that out. You're not going to do it. You're going to go nuts. God has called us to preach. God has called us to witness. Paul was about as believed in the doctrine of election about as much as anybody in the whole Bible did, and yet what did he do? He spent his life taking the gospel to the lost. Because he understood that he was the means whereby God's message comes to the elect. And if Paul didn't do it, somebody else would do it, but Paul wanted to be in on the process. 
we'll, we'll work through that. We're going to come back and hit a lot of these things in more detail. It, um, it impacts our understanding of eternal security in this sense. If you didn't do anything to get saved, can you do anything to get unsaved? Yeah. I mean, if, if God chose me in eternity past to be glorified, can I do anything to follow that up? No, I can't. Because see, God did not, according to Romans 8, 28 through 30, God did not ordain the beginning of my salvation. He ordained the end of it. Salvation is one of the steps along the way. In eternity past, God says, Alan's going to be with me in eternity future. So nothing I do will follow that plan up. Nothing. I can't undo what God has done. Now, I don't even want to, but I can't. So, are you secure? You bet you are. Um, it's going to impact our understanding of redemptive history. And there's going to be some mysteries here. Folks, we're getting into some deep thinking stuff here, all right? I, but it's part of the Bible. We've got to talk about it. And I'm not going to do you a favor by just saying, well, that's just too... They, they won't get that. They won't understand that. I don't understand that. But we've got to work through it a little bit. It, under, it impacts our understanding of the nature of man and sin. If you are totally depraved, how is it that you believe? Who has to take the initiative? God does. God takes the initiative. It's going to impact our understanding of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now, here's where the schizo comes in. Why do you keep saying that? It's not funny. Well, it's because it's... There's two things here that, that are apparently contradictory, but both true. It's God's sovereignty and salvation. Yes, he is. Am I responsible to make a choice? Yes, I am. Explain that. I can't. I can't explain it. I can't. And we're going to see that. So what is it? What is this doctrine that we, we talk about? What, it, what, it, what are we talking about here? Well, predestination and election have to do with God's determination and eternity past of who would and would not be saved. Now, this is important here. The Bible never teaches that God ordains people to hell. Understand? What the Bible does teach is that in eternity past, and we're going we're to go through passages on this, don't worry, we'll get to the Bible. We're going to start, by the way, in John chapter 6 with Christ. All right? The Bible teaches that in eternity past, God, for his own sovereign pleasure, his own sovereign purpose, chose those whom he would save. Why did he do that? Well, if you read Ephesians chapter 1, God did it for his own pleasure. He wanted to. Why did God want to? Well, he wanted to. That's what he says. He wanted to. For the good pleasure of his own will, he chose us. He was, there, there was no external agency that caused him to choose one over another. There's no intrinsic value that caused him to choose one over another. God just of his own sovereign purpose that he has within himself that he explains to no one chose those whom he would save. And then predestination is how is that salvation affected? <coughs> what are the steps that bring that individual whom God has chosen to salvation? You ever think, why were you born in America at the time you were born? to the parents that you were born to, in the place that you were born, 
under the circumstances that you were born into. You ever think about that? Well, you've been through all of them. Yeah, I've been through all of them. But anyways, they believe that you choose your parents. That's not right, is it? You don't choose your parents. No, you don't choose your parents. You know, you don't don't choose your parents. Yeah, actually, they do believe that. They believe, you know, you're a disembodied spirit up there, and you've got to choose a parent to be born to, and And it's weird. And you choose to be handicapped? I don't think anybody wants to be handicapped. No, it doesn't. No. That's screwiness. Election has to do with God's choice. Predestination has to do with how does that choice affect it. How is it that God... And look, think of all of us. Think of your story. How is it that we all came to know the Lord? Why is it that we went to that church, why we came friends with that person, that we heard that message, that we listened to that radio program, that maybe we went to that church service or that crusade? or And why is it that we believed and the person that we went with didn't. What was the difference? Um, That's what we're going to be talking about here in this topic. And what is the problem? We talk about this, what are the problems that people come up with? Well, and I'm going to state this, I'm going to prove it. Don't worry about it. I'm going to state it and then we'll prove it. If you want to get a heads up on that, read John 6. Romans 1 and Romans 9. I mean, excuse me, John 6, Ephesians 1, and Romans 9. Those are three passages we'll be working through. The Bible clearly teaches that God has chosen those whom he would save. Clearly teaches that. Again and again and again, the Bible talks about we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. There's no way around that. The problem is, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by God choosing? What do we mean by that? that that's where a lot of the uh, arguments come in. Does it mean that God chose, period? Does it mean that God chose because he knew that we would make a choice? Does it mean that God chose that he would, that anybody who believed would be redeemed, but he didn't choose who would believe? Follow what's going on here? nuances. And that's where all the arguments come from. And that's where a lot of the debate comes from. What does it mean that God chose? You can't get around the fact that the Bible says God chose. You can't. It's throughout the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about it. 1 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. Thessalonians 1. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. We're going to explain that verse. We're going to explain that verse and understand what that verse means in context. We'll understand what it means. But that's where the problem is. What do we mean by God choosing? What do we mean by that? Um, And and we're going to stop with this next two slides and pick it up next week. When you look at this, there are various positions on this whole topic. Number one... I'm going to say, God has no idea who's going to be saved. This is the open theist. Remember we talked about them? What's the open theist? Well, God doesn't know the future because the future hasn't happened yet. And since the future hasn't happened yet, he can't know what's going to happen. 
They deny the omniscience of God. Now, what does the Bible clearly teach about that? God knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 40 through 48, if there's anything that it teaches, is God is saying, I know the end from the beginning. Bring your other gods and let's see, let's see if one of them can tell you what's going to happen. They can't? I can. I know the end from the beginning. If there's anything God tells us, is that he knows all things that are going to happen. But there are some that say, well, God has no idea. He doesn't know who's going to be saved and who isn't. The second, this is a very popular view, is God chooses those whom he knew would choose him. So let's say, well, God looks down time and he says, okay, if I give Alan Schaefer an opportunity to know me, he's going to receive me as Savior, therefore I'm going to choose him because he's going to choose me. Follow? Follow that thinking? In other words, since God knows everything that's going to happen, God knows if he gives me the opportunity to believe, I will believe, therefore he could choose me on the basis that he knows that I would choose him. I'm sovereign. We're going to talk about that. That makes me sovereign in salvation. It's, it's, a, it's a fancy way to dance back to it. But ultimately, God is not sovereign in that viewpoint. Um, it's also known as prescient foreknowledge. What's prescient? Pre-knowing. Pre God knows ahead of time who would believe. Therefore, based on that, he can choose those whom he would say because he knew what we would do. Okay? Then there's a couple other positions. God doesn't choose anybody, but he's pulling for you. Alright? God doesn't choose anybody, but he's pulling for you. Alright? <coughs> this is the predominant view of most of what we call the Arminian viewpoint. The free will viewpoint. Which basically says, look, God did not choose anybody to salvation. Um, the choice is all up to you. You get to decide whether you want to be saved or not. And it's your responsibility and you got to make the choice. And uh, what that basically means is the burden of salvation is not on God. It's not the Holy Spirit that draws. It's your choice. This is why the way was the view of Charles Finney. Who basically said, given time, he could argue anybody into becoming a Christian. Logically. Now, in this particular viewpoint, who's responsible if somebody doesn't believe? evangelist. If you witness to your friend and they don't become a Christian, it's your fault because you should have been able to tell them the gospel better. You should be able to do it better. You should have been able to give them a different argument. You should be able to talk them into it. And if they don't become a Christian, it's your fault and God's going to punish you because they're in hell. That's sort of a bummer way to live, isn't it? It's my fault. It's not. Now, I'm responsible to obey God and evangelize. But I'm not responsible for somebody else's eternal destiny. Okay? But that's what this comes in. And then the final one that we'll talk about, sovereign election. What is that? God chose who would be saved by his own free will. God chose. Why did he choose? Because he wanted to. What's the next answer? He wanted to. And I believe when I get to heaven, if God were to say, Alan, I'll answer any question you want, whatever question it is, I would say, why did you save me? And he'll say, because I wanted to. And that's the only answer I'm going to get. And because of that, then he affects the salvation of all of those whom he chose. Everyone who, who God the Father chose in eternity past will be saved. 
And if you read John chapter 6, what are you going to find Jesus saying? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And this is the viewpoint of those who are Calvinistic. Now, we're going to look through this in greater detail next week. We're going to start getting in to some of these Bible passages. You're really going to want to, you're really going to, want to work through John 6, Romans 9, Ephesians 1. We really want to work through that. All right? And we're going to find out that there's a wonder and an awesomeness to this doctrine and a comfort to this doctrine as well as we work through it. Any questions or comments? We're out of time today. Huh? Okay. If you have questions, we're going to answer all of them, so just write them down. If you have a problem passage, a problem verse, what does this verse mean? We'll talk about them. All right? Father, thanks so much for this time and for granting us this opportunity of study. I pray that you would just encourage our hearts and help us as we work through this most difficult of all topics and gain a greater appreciation and wonder and awe of what you really are in Christ's name. Amen.